Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we're once again continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Before we get to that, we just want to remind you that the nominations period for our elders and deacons is open until February 6th. You can find the nominations form and more information about what it means to nominate an elder or deacon here at South Harbor by visiting the Church Center app. And now, let's head over to Pastor Rob as he brings us another message from the Gospel of Matthew. I realize now, at the end of January, that we are now in the middle of Michigan winter. Right, so here we are. We're in the dead of winter. We've got a couple more months. Um, got a lot of snow last night. We're probably going to see more before it's over. So we're in it for the long haul. I appreciate you guys getting up in the morning and driving. The roads when I got here were pretty bad, um, not plowed at all. So grateful that you all made it safely. Hopefully, there's nobody on the side of the road somewhere trying to get here. But today we're going to continue uh, our series studying the book of Matthew. This is a, this is a series that we're going to do for, for a period of a little over a year. Um, Matthew, of course, is the first of the accounts of Jesus' life that we find in the Bible. Matthew officially starts the New Testament. Um, last week, if you were here with us, we talked about how there was a, a 400-year gap between the last writing of the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, and Matthew in the New Testament. Um, And here's what we've learned so far about this account of Jesus. First, Matthew is a very unlikely person to be writing this account of Jesus. Matthew is one of the 12 disciples that Jesus called to follow him. He chose them. And actually, all of those disciples were pretty unlikely people to follow Jesus. Does anybody remember why? They're all very different tax Yes, yeah, a couple other things, but there's one kind of main fact like, that makes all of them unlikely, and it's the fact that they had already failed out of the program, so to speak, right? So all Jewish boys, <clears throat> from the time that they were really little, would learn the Torah, right? They'd be educated in the Torah, which is the story and the laws of the Jewish people. And as they grew older, there would be certain points in their lives where there, there would be tests, essentially, um, and they would memorize and memorize all of this. If you can imagine looking at the first five books of our Bible and memorizing all of that, that's what they would have to do. And only the best and the brightest of them would continue on, and there were different stages. Well, none of the 12 disciples, when Jesus calls them, is actually doing this anymore. And what it means is that at some point, the rabbi said to them, you've done well. We don't think you can go any further than this. This is as far as you can go. And then they would say, go and ply your trade. Go join the family business. Go get a job. And so when we meet the disciples, they're all working jobs. They're all outside of the system. They've all failed out. And then Matthew, as somebody just pointed out, Matthew is a tax collector. And what do we know about tax collectors in Jesus' time? What's that? They were, the worst. they were the worst. They were the worst. They were the worst. They are traitors. They're traitors to their own people. They have gone to work for the Roman Empire. And on top of that, they're gone, they've gone to work with the Roman Empire to collect taxes, really oppressive amounts of taxes. 
And then in order to get paid, they had to, they had to collect more to pay for themselves. So these people are looked down on. They are the worst in that society, absolutely. Um, so maybe Matthew is the least likely person to, to expect to find following Jesus and then going on to write an account of Jesus. Last week, Pastor Tim introduced what we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks, which is the, the most famous sermon of Jesus' life and probably the most famous sermon period, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon actually takes up three whole chapters of the book of Matthew. Uh, before we jump in, though, I want to revisit some of the things that we talked about last week. Um, one of the things that I think is important to learn and to know about as Jesus is teaching, um, teaching this sermon. And the, the most important thing, I think, that I took away from last week was this. There are two groups of people that are present for the sermon, Okay. One group of people is the crowd, right? These are the people that they're following Jesus around essentially because they can get something from him, right? In a lot of cases, it was healing. Um, In some cases, it was a free meal. Uh, But whatever it is, they're not necessarily there to emulate Jesus. When they've gotten what they come for, they'll go home and they'll go about their lives, And they don't have a lot invested. And they kind of come and go. In the story, you'll see it a lot as Jesus' life goes on. Crowds come and crowds go. But the other group of people that are present are the disciples. And these 12 boys, I don't know if you you saw the picture that Tim had a couple weeks ago. It was a picture of of rabbis with their disciples. And and they're boys. They're teenage boys. These boys are here for a reason. They're here to learn from the teacher. Jesus has invited this unlikely group of boys who have already failed out of the program to become his learners. They're there to take on Jesus' yoke. In other words, they're there to learn how to live and how to think like Jesus. And this is a huge honor to be able to follow a rabbi I think we kind of laughed a couple weeks ago, but these, some of the movies that we've had about Jesus where Jesus calls the disciples, it seems like he has some sort of power over them. They just drop what they're doing and they leave. But what we have to understand is that this would be a, it would be a huge honor to be able to leave fishing to go follow a rabbi. And when Jesus begins this chapter, this sermon, he's teaching his disciples. The crowds are still there, but I think Jesus isn't, shaping mode here. He's addressing his followers that are not just there for the day or for something they can get from him. They're there to shape their whole lives into a copy of Jesus. And that's the distinction between the two groups. Some are there for what they can get from Jesus and some are there to be shaped into a copy of Jesus. And that makes me think about all of us. All of us here today. And what we're doing here. This is the question we have to ask ourselves, right? Am I here for something I can receive? Or am I here to be shaped into a copy of Jesus? That's the real difference between being part of the crowd and being a disciple. When we say yes to Jesus in whatever form that takes or took, we are, at least we should be, taking on the yoke of Jesus We should be following his example in a way that we become more and more like him. And if we're not doing that, 
then we might just be part of the crowd. Jesus takes three whole years with these disciples to train them all day, every day. They follow him. He teaches them. They ask questions. He teaches them some more. They imitate him. They do everything he does. He goes from place to place, healing and performing miracles, and the whole time he's teaching them how to live. And today we begin reading what Jesus is teaching them. Last week we ran out of time, so we couldn't uh, get to the actual beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to start there. Essentially, I'm going to try to preach two sermons. We'll see how it goes. One's going to be on the the, uh, Beatitudes, which is the beginning part of the sermon. And then the next is what comes immediately afterwards. The Beatitudes is really just about blessings, which becomes abundantly clear when we read it. Um, And we're going to begin the Sermon on the Mount in verse 3 of chapter 5 in Matthew. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to it, um, you could do that now. You can also follow along on the screens behind me. So Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I want to take a little bit of time and just talk about some of these uh, characteristics, right, that Jesus identifies. Because I think they're really interesting characteristics to identify as, like, Able to receive blessing or blessed, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. These aren't necessarily the characteristics that we might consider as blessed. Certainly not in our kind of Western cultural context. I mean, how many times have you, maybe if you knew somebody that you considered meek, thought of that as a positive trait? I mean, meekness kind of goes hand in hand with weakness, doesn't it? It sort of seems like it does. And yet here's meekness on full display as something Jesus says is blessed. But before we even get into describing these traits and talking about them, I think it's important to know why Jesus is talking about these things. Why these traits? Why did he choose these? And I personally, when I, you know, as I learned about these growing up, I personally assumed that Um, these are characteristics of people that Jesus is just pointing out and saying, these are good things. That people who are naturally peacemakers, people who are naturally merciful, or any of the other things, that those people are blessed to be who they are. For instance, if if I feel like I'm naturally a peacemaker, then I'm going to be called a child of God. And that's a good thing, Right? But we have to remember that Jesus isn't just pointing this out in other people, right? 
I think he's, he's actively shaping the lives of his disciples in this moment. In other words, Jesus isn't just being descriptive in these verses. I think he's also being prescriptive. He's not just saying that merciful people will be shown mercy. He is saying that, but I think he's also saying that his disciples should be merciful people. Not just that peacemakers are going to be called children of God, but that they should be peacemakers. I think it's both prescriptive and descriptive. So if we're planning on following Jesus, if we're choosing to be disciples instead of just part of the crowd, then these are the characteristics that we should expect to exhibit in our own lives. If we're going to walk in the footsteps of the teacher, then this is what we're going to learn how to be. And the other thing I think that's happening here is I think Jesus is setting the stage for the kind of Messiah that he is. Remember, Matthew is really concerned, as are the Jewish people, with the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. It's what they've been waiting for for years. And now there's been a 400-year gap. And now the Messiah is there. And Matthew has been drawing these lines between Jesus and Moses in his book, right? We've talked about that. Just as Moses once freed the people from slavery in Egypt, the Messiah is going to come and free us from the bondage or the, or the oppression of the Roman Empire. But Jesus is painting a different picture, right? A lot different than what people were expecting. Because they're expecting a leader, a conqueror, maybe a military leader, to fight Rome and actually take Israel out and free the nation. But Jesus hasn't really come to do that. I mean, Jesus has come to free his people, absolutely. But he's come to free his people not from Rome, but from their own brokenness and their bondage not to Rome, but to their own sin. In order for them to be back in a relationship with God. So the characteristics he emphasizes are different than what people are expecting. I want to take a little bit of time and look at a few of these. I don't think there would be time to do all of them because it would just be a really long sermon. Jesus starts with the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Most of the definitions that I was able to find in different places was these definitions sort of lean toward the idea of poor in spirit, meaning that we understand our own spiritual condition and we're not well. We understand that we need God in our lives in order to be the creation that we were intended to be. That when we live our lives without God, we are not living our fullest life. We recognize our need for God. And then, when we recognize that need for God, we're in a posture of humility. One that recognizes that we are incapable on our own of being fulfilled. And really, if you think about it, recognizing our own spiritual insufficiency is the first step toward becoming a disciple. And maybe that's why Jesus started with that trait. He's gathered these young men from various places to follow him. But I can imagine that even though they're now following Jesus, they're living with their failure already, right? They know they've already failed out. They know they're not the best and the brightest. But Jesus says, that's okay. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. It's okay to recognize your need for God. It's okay to feel insufficient. 
Because once we find ourselves in that position, we are ready to let God come into our lives. We're right where God wants us so that he can be the center of our lives. How many of you have ever felt poor in spirit? You can raise your hand. Anybody? Yeah, a few of us. I feel like the last couple of years have been years that um, I might identify as poor in spirit for myself. Um, I remember when COVID first hit and we were told to stay in our houses and with our bubbles and stuff. And for a while, we were okay, right? We powered through, we did well, everybody chin up, right? And then after a while, for me, I felt like I started to wear down. It got really hard. I started to wonder about a lot of things. I, my spirit felt tired and depleted. And God says we are blessed. God is calling us in those times to draw near to him. Blessed are you when your spirit is exhausted because God will draw you near. Blessed are those who mourn. To me, this one seems really counterintuitive. I mean, if you're mourning, it means that something really bad has already happened to you. When I think about mourning, I think about when you lose somebody or maybe you've gotten a really bad diagnosis or maybe somebody else has done something that has really negatively impacted your life and there is a loss there. Those are the times when we mourn. Mourning is an expression of our grief. And I don't think I grieve well. I know I don't mourn well. And I, at least for myself, I can say there's something built into me that makes me think I need to have it together all the time and I need to be strong and I need to push through. And this whole idea of mourning does not make the list of things like strong and having things together. And yet Jesus says when we mourn, we're blessed. And again, it's in those very moments that we find ourselves in our weakest places that there is room for God to be present. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. As I mentioned before, I think in particular in our culture, this is not a characteristic that we seek. Meekness always seems to be tied to weakness. I, can, I can't remember anybody being described as meek in a positive way. Because meek people don't seek to exert their will of, over others. And frankly, we live in a world that idolizes strength. We don't elect people who are meek. We elect people who are strong, who are bold, right? Those are the kind of people that we want to see lead. I think one of the best examples of meekness that shows strength is actually going to come later in the story of Jesus' life. He's going to become the best example of the word meek. It's when Jesus is arrested and he's standing in front of the Jewish and the Roman leaders and they're accusing him. And what's Jesus' response? He doesn't defend himself. He's not guilty, but he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't fight for his right to be freed. In fact, most of the time he's there, he's silent, and he doesn't defend himself at all. And that's what I would call meek, and that's one of the strongest things Jesus ever does. He knows the power that's available to him. 
but he allows what's going to happen to happen. To accept our circumstances as they are and to faithfully continue to follow God and praise God is meekness. It isn't weak, but it is an acceptance that our will is not what's most important. Like I said, I won't be able to go through all these traits. And some of them are more easily understood as good than others, um, like the peacemakers. Like We can all agree that that's a good thing, right? I think we can say that pure in heart is a good thing. I think we could say merciful is a good thing, although we had a little pastoral discussion about that right before we came in here. I don't know, but I think most of those seem like good things to me. And we can say, yeah, those people should be blessed. Those are all good things. But there's one other one of these traits that I want to talk about. And this is one that has changed for me in particular over the years. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. My understanding of this growing up was sort of like this. If you really desire to be a good person in your heart, someone who lives a morally right life, do the right things, then you will be filled, right? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I don't think that's an entirely bad interpretation, right? There's good in that. I think we should be morally good people. I would agree with that. But as I've grown older, I think it's talking about more than just my own personal sense of righteousness. And here's what I mean. I've started to believe especially as I try to look, through all, look at all things in the world through the lens of who Jesus Christ was, I think that we are also supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness in the world. Not just our own hearts, but in the whole world. And by righteousness, I don't necessarily mean we need to be the, the morality police for everybody else in the world. That's not what I'm talking about. Instead, I think I'm supposed to hunger and thirst for things to be right in the world. That kind of righteousness. As God, through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, is reconciling the whole world back to God, we too, as followers of Jesus, should long for things in the world to be put right. I have two examples that hit pretty close to home. Most of you know what hand-to-hand is, Right? Hand-to-hand exists because kids go home from school on the weekends and they're hungry. And there were a bunch of people that said, that's a bad idea. That's wrong. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to change that. And they hunger and thirst for putting something right. And so we feed thousands of kids in West Michigan every weekend. I think that's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The other example is Partners, Partners Relief and Development, another one of our mission partners. They go around the world. They, they work with people who have been displaced out of their homes into camps. They build schools for people in Middle Eastern countries that have been blown up and bombed. And they do that because they see something wrong in the world and they say that is not how it is supposed to be. They hunger and they thirst for righteousness. These are the things that These are the traits Jesus wants his disciples to take on and become. And Jesus becomes our example for this, right? As Jesus begins his ministry, he gives us a glimpse into what the next couple of years is going to look like. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, people longing for the world to be put right. These are the people that he spends almost all of his time with. 
Those are the people that he is going to draw near to. And as we look at this list of traits, are these the things that we see as blessed? Are these the things that we see developing in us as we continue to follow Jesus? Because I think they're supposed to be. Now, like I said, unfortunately, I can't go through the rest of them because I actually do want to get to the next passage of scripture, which comes right after the Beatitudes. And the reason I want to do that is because I think we're getting an idea of how Jesus wants us to look, and I want to give us a little bit of an idea of why he wants us to look that way, and that's the next little passage of scripture. I want to read uh, Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. For many of us who maybe have grown up in church or Christian school, this is a really familiar passage. Um, And maybe that familiarity makes it hard for us to fully appreciate what Jesus is saying here. Although I I, I do run in circles where people a lot of times say, I'm going to be salt and light in the world. And that's what they're talking about is this passage. What does that mean to be salt and light? What is Jesus telling his disciples? First, salt. In Michigan... We use salt to melt ice and snow. But in Jesus' time, what was salt primarily used for? Any ideas? Yeah, preserving, right? There are four fishermen following Jesus. They catch a bunch of fish. What do they do with it? They can't put it in the refrigerator. They need to preserve it somehow, right? And they understand this because they're they're really close to Magdala, which is on the Sea of Galilee, which is kind of the primary spot for food preservation. They would know this because that's where they bring the fish that they catch to preserve it. Salt prevents decay. It prevents rot. But it also enhances flavor. Um, all three of my kids have moved out this past year, and so Shanna and I have been cooking a lot of meals together because there's lots of space and time to do that in the evenings. And I've been surprised we've been doing these, these uh, meal plans where you get a bunch of ingredients and you have to make it yourself and then you use some of the stuff in your own house. And I'm surprised at how much salt I'm using because I didn't know what I was doing. Did you know that when you cook pasta, you're, you should be able to taste the salt in the water? You should have that much salt in the water? It enhances the flavor of the food. Almost every meat that we cook, you coat it with salt and pepper before you put it in the pan. And it really helps everything. It really does enhance the flavor of the food. Salt preserves and it enhances. And I think that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. I want to read that same passage of scripture, that same verse about salt. I'm going to read this from uh, the message. It's Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible. And it's put in common language. And I think this is helpful for us. It says this. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning, 
that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Brings out the God flavors of this earth. How will people taste godliness? I think we are to work our way into the world, the way that salt works its way into meat to preserve it, into food to enhance it, and bring out those God flavors that are built into all of creation and all of us. But if we don't do that, if we choose not to do that, that's losing our saltiness, and we're no longer of any use. And then there's light. And maybe this one's a little bit more self-explanatory because we know what light does in the darkness, right? And we know that there is a lot of darkness in the world, right? We see it all around us every day. We see it in the news. We see it at school. We see it at work. We even sometimes, unfortunately, see it in our home. Things are dark. There is pain and there's suffering. And it's almost palpable. Sometimes, you know, the spiritual darkness in the world, you can almost feel it. There's a darkness. And light does a couple things in the darkness. It illuminates and reveals, right? It, it brightens but shows you um, something. And it also, light also attracts. So we have a stairway in our house. I was thinking about it this morning as I was getting ready to, to come here and preach this message. <laughs> I was walking down the stairs in our house, and we have this stairway that there's no place to, there's no outlet to put like a nightlight, and the stairs are dark brown. And you literally, even with a little bit of light that comes in from the outside, you cannot see the steps. And so you have to do that thing where you like put your foot to the edge. But if you turn the light on, you know right where to step. Light illuminates, it reveals, it shows you where to go, it guides you. And light also attracts. It draws attention. Jesus uses the image of a city on a hill. And if you can imagine being a traveler and you're trying to get somewhere and it's getting dark, a city on a hill with light, of course you're going to, you're going to use that to guide you and you're going to be attracted to that light, right? So you're not left out in the dark. Here's Peterson's message again on light. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. So it's his disciples, but it's you and it's me, the poor in spirit, the meek, the mourning. We have been blessed, but we have been blessed to go. And now we are called to go be light in the world, a light that draws people to us because that draws people 
and their attention to Jesus. Be light and salt in the world. And we do, we do have a choice in this. We can choose to be part of the crowd. We can show up when we need something, and we can listen to the teaching, and we can repeat it to ourselves during the week. And then we can also leave when we've had enough, or when it gets too hard, or when we don't like something that we've heard. Or we can choose to be disciples. If we have said yes to Jesus, then that's the path we've chosen, to be salt and light in a flavorless and a dark world. Showing people that there is a God that loves them and that is calling them back into relationship through Jesus Christ. And I want to I end by pointing out a few ways, easy ways. It takes commitment, but it's, it's not hard. Easy ways to be salt and light in the world today. A couple of them are going to be here in this community and a couple of them are going to be maybe in, a, in our broader community. But I, I want you to know about a team of people. I call it our campus care team. They're elders and deacons. And they have various different roles, but their job primarily is to care for this body of people that shows up at South Harbor Church. And they do things like they call on people, they check on them when they've been sick, they send cards, they send flowers, they pray with them, they ask if there's anything we can do. We, we, help, them, we help people financially sometimes. Sometimes we help them in other ways when they need some sort of physical help. And those people, I believe, are salt and light in this community. I believe when they do that work that they're showing people who Jesus is and how Jesus wants us to live. And every year, a few of those folks rotate off of our campus care team, and we need to look for new folks to join the team. So if you're looking for a way to take a next step, we've been talking about next steps for the past well, a year now, we've been talking about next steps. If you're looking for a way to take a next step and you want to experience what it means to be salt and light in your community, I would encourage you to nominate yourself. <laughs> or if that feels really weird, have somebody else nominate you. But if you want to be salt and light in this community, you can do it that way. And there's another way here at South Harbor that you can do that. We have kids' ministry. It's going on right now. And there's a, there's a few kids back there, not many, but a couple, who need a little bit of extra care and help so that they can be in the room. We believe everybody belongs and everybody deserves a chance to be a part of that ministry, but some of our kids have some special needs. And those kids don't need a lot, but they need a buddy. They need one person that will just be with them the whole time. While the teaching's going on, while the crafts are going on, while the singing's going on, all that stuff, they just need somebody to be by them. Make sure they're okay. Somebody that they can talk to and connect with. If you want to be salt and light to a kid in our community that wants to be here but needs a buddy, I would encourage you to think about that. You can ask Abby Black about that opportunity. And then thirdly, another opportunity. This is more in our community, but it's a part of what we do here at South Harbor. We have a Kids Hope um, ministry here, and our Kids Hope coordinator, Karen Vanderlaan, has been talking to me about how things are going, and things are going really well. But there are two kids who have 
been recommended to Kids Hope and they have their permission slips in, but we don't have mentors for them. These are some of our most vulnerable and underprivileged kids in our community. And it means the world to them that an adult would meet with them weekly for one hour. And I know sometimes your schedule doesn't work well with that. It has to be during the school day at the school. But I know that I met with a boy for a couple of years and his, his best hour of the week was when I showed up. And I barely did anything. We just played games. I hung out. But I showed up. And if you want to be salt and light to kids in our community, you can do that. Karen, I asked Karen to be a connecting point right after the service. If you're even just contemplating the idea of it, I would appreciate you go and have a conversation with her. I think Jesus tells us in this whole passage how to be and then what to do. And it's my prayer that we would actually live that out. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, you gave us what was most important to you. You gave us your son. And he came and he lived a life. And he taught us how to live that same kind of life. And I pray, God, that we would, that we would do it. I pray that we would be peacemakers, that we would be merciful. Pray that we would be pure in heart, and I also pray that we would be poor in spirit so we're open to you. And God, I pray that we would desire to be the thing that draws people to you, to be the salt in a flavorless world, to be the light in a dark place. May you help us find ways, each of us find ways to go do that in the world. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.